Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, welcome to LeechFest, a medical history podcast where we frequently talk about uh, European medical history, uh, but not this time, because we are going to talk about the Islamic Golden Age. Mm-hmm. And all of the cool things that that age produced in mm-hmm. terms of medical science and medical history. We're I'm... finally leaving Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was high time for us to do an episode about um, like non-European history. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to do this episode. Yeah, it's it's a it's it is a syndrome of like most history content generally that it is very Eurocentric. Um, and that is, you know, that's the fault of a lot of things. So, you know, partial part, part of that is because we're in Europe, so that's the perspective that we have most like access to. Mm-hmm. And secondly, it's because like during the nineteenth and twentieth century, uh, Europeans conquered basically the entire world and mm. destroyed everyone else's history. So that's what we have left with, unfortunately. However, uh, you know, usually we deal with episodes that you know deal with death and epidemics and other like imperialism, dark things. But this time, uh, we're going to do an episode about. You know, things that are good. Mm-hmm. This is a wholesome episode. A good part of medical history. Yeah. Which is rare. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, let's introduce ourselves. My name is Roluca Mundano. I'm Mia Mulder. I said that very sensually. You did. I've noticed you do that sometimes. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's... I, I need the audience to know that how I, feel, how I feel about them as an audience, not individually. Mm-hmm. You don't know me. Um, but how have you been? Since the last time we made this uh, this podcast, how have you been? I've been okay. Um, spring allergies are killing me. <laughs> if if I'm sniffling a little bit through this episode, you're gonna know why. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the birches are spreading their seed. <laughs> yeah, and it's um, it's it's a new thing. I've never had allergies to like, like I don't have any allergies to to plants or anything like that. So this is actually the first year when I'm noticing allergies. So I guess I'm like developing spring allergies which is not something i'm excited about necessarily but it is how it is mm-hmm. that uh, it's very common actually yeah uh, to develop allergies over time yeah oh, well yeah. but you're still here recording the podcast yeah despite well they're half not being able to breathe they're not well they're, they're not that bad okay. <laughs> i'm fine i'm a little sniffly and a little tired and a little um sneezy but it's all good how are you I'm good. Mm-hmm. I have no allergies. Mm-hmm. In fact, I I may have lost some allergies uh, at, at, over time, but that's an episode for another time. That's a that's content for something else. I used to be allergic to, to bird. I accidentally ate some chicken. To bird. Yeah, to bird. Yeah, no, I, you were allergic to chicken. I feel like calling it, I'm allergic to bird is a little bit of a misrepresentation <laughs> of your allergies. Well, it's all bird, because I also had like allergic reactions like turkey. Well, yeah, but like, I think you should specify... You're allergic to eating chicken. Yes, that's Like, right. you don't, you know, if a chicken touches you, you're not allergic to, like, live chickens. Mm. You're allergic to poultry. That's okay, yeah. I'm yeah. allergic to eating <laughs> chicken. And then yeah. I accidentally ate some chicken because I bought some soup mm-hmm. that I thought was vegan mm-hmm. and had chicken in it. Mm-hmm. And I was fine. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my news uh, regarding allergies. Mm-hmm. This happened a while ago, but nothing else has happened. You also got your uh, vaccine, speaking oh, of nothing. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. The biggest news in regarding medical history. Yeah, I got my first shot of the vaccine. Yeah. I, I, I still don't know why I got it. I think we mentioned this last time in the episode. Yeah, yeah. That, like, we did. I, was, I had a time and I'm not supposed to have it. 
Yeah. Yet, but I, I mean, asked the people at the plays, and they were like, I guess it's your time. Guess it's yeah. your turn for the vaccine. I guess. And initially, you were even supposed to get it in June, right? Which is yeah. actually, like, early as it is. And then they moved your date for, like, now. Yeah, like, so early, had... early May. Uh, when is when we're recording this episode? Yeah, uh, and it's so wild. I because um, I think right now, like in my city, they're um, well in our city, they're vaccinating fifty year olds yeah. right now. So you're like way ahead of mm-hmm. of uh, people our age. And I don't know why I'm like I'm not in a risk group. I'm not in anything. But I got my vaccine though. Like yeah. I'm not gonna complain as to why the reason is, but it's a mystery. One that I one day will solve. Um, but not 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 today. Maybe I'm waiting for my second shot, and uh, I hope that's going to be good. Mm-hmm. I got Pfizer, mm-hmm. uh, and I also got side effects. <laughs> I got muscle aches all throughout my body, so yeah. you know. But still good. Get your vaccine if you're out there, uh, dear audience. You should. It's uh, it's very good, uh, and you also get an excuse to be lazy for a day. <laughs> but before we go into the the meat of this episode, I uh, I you know we should thank. Our dear patrons who make it this episode and this podcast possible. And this month we want to thank William Fuhassel. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much, William Fuhassel. Your contribution makes it so that I don't have to worry about paying the hosting fees for this podcast, which are irregular and strange, <laughs> uh, a bit mysterious, and perhaps a little bit spooky. But thanks to you, I don't have to worry about it. Thank you so much for that. And with that said, I think it's time to get into the main segment of today's episode. Mm-hmm. So today we're going to be talking about medicine in the medieval Islamic world. And we're not necessarily talking about um, a specific thing. Like, I feel like in past episodes we've talked about, like, specific epidemics or specific people, you know. This episode is a bit more general. It's about a movement. It's about a time period. Mm. Uh, It's about a a location, right? Mm -hmm. A location that has often been overlooked Mm -hmm. in medical history. Mm, Exactly. So science in the medieval Islamic world was developed and practiced during the Islamic Golden Age, like we said, which was the period roughly between the 7th century and the 13th century. Although some people would say it was until the 16th century. Yeah, I've also heard uh, other dates for like when it ended. Mm. Uh, and I'm, I'm actually going to talk a little bit about that in the end of the episode. Nice. Um, so major centers of learning at the time were Baghdad, Damascus, Cairo, and later uh, Cordoba in Spain. As we said before, during this era, scientific thought in Europe was um, not at its best. It (laughs) It had some issues. It had some issues. It um, kind of spiraled into superstition and darkness. Mm -hmm. However, thankfully, the Islamic world continued to push science forward. So a major contribution of Arab scholars was that they assimilated and disseminated knowledge of other cultures. But they also definitely made numerous important scientific and technological advances in mathematics, astronomy, chemistry, um, architecture, textiles, and agriculture. I don't know how to say that word. Metallurgy. (laughs) Um, In the script, she skipped over the term metallurgy. I I realized I don't know how to say it, so Mm, I was just like... "Mm." I I know how to say it. It's metallurgy. It's the science of metals. I've noticed in this podcast, sometimes I will... Um, I know what a word means, but I, I will write it down and I realize I've only 
read it. I've never heard somebody say it. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when we were talking about Hippocrates and I kept saying Hippocrates and then when it was <laughs> your turn to speak saying Hippocrates, Hippocrates and I remember me being like, oh no, did you not correct me? <laughs> like I sound like a fool right now. Um, I, 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 but I, okay, but on this point, I think Hippocrates is actually like the more like a Greek pronunciation of it. It I is, think Hippocrates right. is the more like Anglonized version of it. So yeah. I think you're right anyway. Yeah, but I think, you know, since we're speaking English, I think most people would prefer it if you use the like... The Anglonized. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I'm going to talk about the Islamic Golden Age, just mm-hmm. generally. Mm-hmm. We, we to, as, as an historian... I love to say that we can't understand the achievements of a time without understanding the context of the time. So that is why I'm going to take up 80% of this episode talking (laughs) about that instead of the thing that we actually care about. Uh, But I promise it'll be interesting. So the Islamic Golden Age, as you said, is a a time period that begins in the 700s, roughly. And it is thought to begin with the foundation of the House of Wisdom in Baghdad. Because that was the capital of the Abbasid Caliphate, which is sometimes known as the Islamic Empire. And we kind of have to understand like what a caliphate is at this point. A caliph is basically the leader, like at the time, like the self-proclaimed leader of all Muslims. So there are, there are, there are numerous like kingdoms and, and empires like within this political entity, but the caliphate is like supreme over all of that. A different type to structure society than the kingdoms and dukedoms of Europe. This empire stretched from, mo- from the modern-day Middle East, bordering parts of what we would today call China, or very close to China, all the way to modern Spain, with, with various like, degrees of, of power in, the, in those areas. More Islamic states existed in Spain proper that weren't like part of the empire exactly, but they recognized the caliph as like the leader anyway, so it's a bit of, like, political, whatever. But as we mentioned, Europe at this time, and we're going to have to compare with Europe a lot, because that is what a lot of us know, they're grappling with how to wash their clothes, <laughs> uh, washing their hands, doesn't really understand where sickness comes from. Yeah, I think it's it's actually interesting that we made this episode about the Black Death, right? Because we talk mm-hmm. a lot about how they viewed sickness, how they viewed the Black Death in particular. But I think that episode is a really good, like, just reflection of how they how they they treated people at the time and how they saw like health mm-hmm. and sort of the the ideas that they had about like illness and health and honestly how how backward they were mm. um at the time so it's it's a really good like um baseline that we've established mm. with that episode yeah exactly and and I, and I think it's important to, to understand why because we kind of talked about like why Europe mm. became it way it was but like why the Islamic Empire, so to say, with the, with the Abbasid Caliphate, mm-hmm. um, was as progressive as it was. And there are a few reasons as to why. I'm going to quickly summarize uh, as far as I can. So one is the, the, the somewhat religious motif. Just very basically, both the Quran and the Hadiths advocate education as something like positive and uh, aspirational. Uh, for, for those people who don't know what a Hadith is... So it is. Yeah. It is the, the the sayings of Muhammad, right? Yeah, it's the, the, the sayings and uh, in some cases like doings of Muhammad, like, like what the he does. Teachings. Yes, yeah, yeah. What he does like in his life, mm. and, uh, and, and you know that's a bit more interpretative than than the Quran, which mm-hmm. is a, a bit more like dictated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's still something that's important in Muslim faiths, and especially during this time. I do want to say I I'm not an expert on. <laughs> 
um, like Islam. Mm -hmm. I in some of these words, you know, I actually had I didn't know what a hadith was mm -hmm. until this episode, so I had to look it up. So if I'm um, if I'm wrong anywhere, um, you know, let mm -hmm. us know. Oh, I'm also not an expert here. Yeah. We're, we're trying to do this era justice, but the, mm -hmm. I'm sure we're going to miss. There, something. there might come some some parts in this episode where we are going to be drawing interpretations, um, or at least I will be drawing interpretations of the Quran, um, you know, that I've read in papers. Mm -hmm. So people that are smarter than me have drawn, I'm not drawing mm. my own interpretations, but still, like, I'm, I'm not an expert mm. on Islam. So um, I hope you as a listener, if you know better, maybe let us know, or hopefully you can be a bit kind. Yeah. Um, We've read good papers mm -hmm. by, like, great Islamic scholars who studied the Golden Age. Mm. But, you know, we are, we are a filter, mm. and we're, we might be a faulty filter. But, you know, because, because, the, because the Quran and they have these value education, the argument is that that is something that is reflected in the, in the practices of, of the Islamic Empire and in the, in the state. Because compared to, to Europe at the time, where mm. education is very much centralized in the clergy. Like, they are the people who can read, they are the people who can do science and health. In the Islamic faith, it's seen as a positive, aspirational thing for everyone, mm -hmm. not just people who deal with religion. It's, it's seen as a universal good. And when you have people who are educated, it tends to help with science. Secondly, and maybe the more important aspect here, because a, a lot of people will attribute religion as like a, a, like, a lot of people will read this and be like, oh, well, that's why. But obviously, history is very complicated. I would say that maybe a more important reason was the fact that the Islamic Empire and the, the, the empires of the Islamic world were vast. And these empires conquered a lot of lands. And you may think that... You may, you may interpret that as, as a solely negative thing for intellectualism. In European history, that often comes with destroying culture and destroying mm. heritage and mm. things of that nature. But not here. They realized that to maintain such a, such a huge empire with various cultures and languages and religions within it, you need a functioning bureaucracy, which leads to needing people who are educated. So it's not just a religious thing, it's also a practical thing to have educated uh, bureaucrats. So many leaders of uh, the caliphate would sponsor actively education initiatives and found schools and, uh, like as we mentioned, the, the Baghdad House of Wisdom. And they had many other houses of wisdom, as you mentioned. So what was a house of wisdom? Wonderful question. <laughs> I love this. We're getting into the Socratic method. I love this. All right. um, a house of wisdom, specifically the Baghdad House of Wisdom, it's a bit of a controversy about the nature of how that would have looked in practice. It was either the private library of one of the caliphs, uh, but a library during this time is not just like a library you have in your room in your apartment, like mm. where you just store books. It's, a, it's, a, it's also a place where, I mean, you do store books, but you also copy books. You bring in intellectuals to study and, uh, and, to, and to educate others. It's basically like a school, mm. like a university almost. Mm. So that is one interpretation. The other interpretation, which is a bit more favored by historians, is that it was probably just founded as a type of university, like as a school, where they would have intellectuals teach other people to become intellectuals and, and spread knowledge. They would be sponsored with state money to explore both the empire and beyond the empire, to gather scrolls and knowledge and come back to the House of Wisdom, and then that knowledge would be copied and shipped to other houses of wisdom as a sort of intellectual powerhouse. And they were they were very well funded. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, important. Because like when we're talking about like a golden age, the golden part is important. You need money to actually do this stuff. And this is reflected in the fact that intellectuals were 
very highly treated and very highly respected within, within the Islamic world at the time and had a lot of freedom. If we're going to do another comparison with European clergy, again, oftentimes European priests were like almost forced to be poor. The church eventually, as we mentioned in our episode about, about uh, witchcraft, for example, did you know, monetize and sort of monopolize the intellectual pursuits of Europe to enhance their own wealth. But oftentimes that was under the direct control of the church. And, and being under the control of the church, it's limiting, it's controlling. Whereas here, because of their freedom and because of their allowance to make money of themselves, but also via state sponsorship, that means that they can reinvest a lot of the, the money that they have into other intellectual pursuits, rather than just going into luxuries for the Pope. Uh, in fact, some intellectuals and philosophers of the Islamic world were paid vast sums of gold to, to do their intellectual pursuits. A modern-day wealth comparison that I found compared some of the intellectuals to being paid like modern-day sports athletes, like, uh, like if Cristiano Ronaldo was a philosopher. <laughs> Another reason why the Islamic Golden Age happened was that it was a lot more tolerant of other contributors to science when it comes to religion and culture. And everything that, that I've mentioned so far, you know, obviously it doesn't just affect education and intellectualism. It also affects, like, you know, how effective trade is, how effective administration works, crime prevention. Think all of these things. They all contribute to, to the golden age. If we compare to Europe, we mentioned in a recent episode how pagan medical knowledge, for example, was lost over time after church dominance over Europe became more entrenched, that local remedies and healthcare options were, you know, in effect destroyed to make way for something that the church could take advantage of instead. But this didn't happen in, in the Islamic world. It wasn't just scholars who were Muslim who were allowed to contribute to science. And in fact, it was very much encouraged that people from other religions and other cultures would contribute to these houses of wisdom. Oftentimes, the leaders of these empires, they also realize that it's a lot easier to make conquered lands stay your lands if you don't oppress them too much, and if you include them in, in your empire, and if you include them in your, in your ruling, in, in your intellectual pursuits, in your trade, and so on. One example of this is, for example, how Nestorian Christians, their lands were conquered, but they, they maintained uh, their intellectual independent pursuits and they, and they were even supported by, by Muslim leaders and, uh, and scholars. Oftentimes, many of these Nestorian Christians would also lead the houses of wisdom. It's not just that they were allowed to participate. They were oftentimes invited to, to be leaders within the intellectual movement as well. So while we call it the Islamic Golden Age, or sometimes the Arabic Golden Age, it was in fact much more like a multicultural, multi-religious movement. Because it turns out that when you in include more cultures and viewpoints into your philosophy and your science, uh, it becomes a lot more productive. Islamic scholars would also try to seek out knowledge in areas that did not fit within the, the like the Muslim worldview, so to say. There are and there are multiple examples of like Islamic scholars traveling like all the way to northern Russia, uh, encountering Vikings. Even like one of the one of the few like written down examples that we have of Vikings that isn't that isn't from the perspective of someone who is like oh save us from the Norsemen, um, <laughs> is from one of these uh, Islamic scholars who who wrote about them and said and talked about their culture and talked about how they dressed and how they how they smelt. <laughs> their, how did their they smell? Rituals. They smelled well. They smelled. They well. smelled well. They smelled. I, I if I remember correctly from from some of the the writings of it, they, they smelled. They didn't smell as good as as, as, pe as, as people in, in, in Baghdad, but they smelled better than everyone else. <laughs> 
And that's probably because, like, the, you know, Vikings washed a little bit. Not as much as the Muslims did, but more than the Christians did. I mean, I guess if you center your life around traveling by water or living around water, yeah. you do get exposed to water. <laughs> like it makes more, you cleaner. Makes you cleaner. But they would also, for example, travel throughout Africa. They would travel to India. Even Muhammad says in, in one of the hadiths that you can seek knowledge wherever you find it. Even in China. And that <laughs> I, is how it's phrased. It's yeah. even in China. I remember reading that too. And I, I know it's it's referring to the fact that China is like so far away. Mm-hmm, it's on the mm-hmm. other side of the world. That's why the... But today is like... Even in China, you can find knowledge. The final sort of piece in the puzzle was that many Muslim intellectuals and nobles and leaders showed a great interest in knowledge that they didn't themselves produce, even ancient knowledge. The translation movement is like a a huge part of why the Islamic Golden Age was so successful. The caliphs al-Rashid and al-Mamun led uh, the translation movement, or like laid the foundations of the translation movement, where Islamic scholars would translate ancient Greek texts, that of like Socrates and uh, Aristotle, Galen, and translate them into Arabic. Uh, Yeah, and 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 even interpret them and build on them. So I think Mm. this is something that is a little bit of a misunderstanding of the contribution of the Islamic scholars that they, you know, some people think that they basically just translated a lot of like Greek Mm. um, knowledge or like Greek manuscripts Mm. um, and didn't really contribute much else to that. But they did actually also expand on it mm-hmm. and, you know, bring their own interpretations of it. Mm-hmm. Like Galen, for example, is like one of the ancient Greek like physicians and thinkers when it comes to medicine. It's very, very important when it comes to, yep. to medical knowledge. And most of what we have surviving from that, almost entirely, comes from the Islamic translations. Mm. We also have them within the context of like Arabic scholars just dunking on Galen. Yeah, yeah, just like, being like this... This Greek guy is so stupid. He's not. He's just thinking. He's not applying experiments here. He's wrong. Yeah, he's doing yeah. some things right. But like a lot of this is just wrong. I know, here are I'm, my notes. Exactly. I'm going to talk a bit about their opinion on Greek thinkers <laughs> who sat and fought and didn't verify their, their theories or their hypothesis yeah. in any way. Thank God. And uh, I'm going to mention a little bit more about the translation movement later when I talk about the legacy of the Islamic world. Uh, an Islamic golden age. But just from the things that I mentioned, you can tell that like all of these things independently would have led to a pretty strong foundation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to the sciences. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they, they were all like synergizing with, with, with each other. You can you can tell that, that this is a great context to do good science. Yeah. And good science they did. So just to summarize, because, you know, you named a lot of really good points, but maybe we can just quickly Mm -hmm. summarize what you said. So first off, you have um, the Quran and the Hadiths encouraging a life of learning, Mm -hmm. right? The second point is that because of the conquests, there was a lot of land to manage, which Mm -hmm. means that the empire needed bureaucrats Mm -hmm. to help with, like... Just managing the empire. Yeah, managing the empire, keeping track of people, which meant that it was necessary for them to have educated people. So that's the second one. Thirdly, the Islamic world was a lot more tolerant of other cultures, Mm -hmm. and so they accepted contributions from people who are not necessarily Muslim. Mm -hmm. Third, and then fourth, intellectuals were treated very highly and had a lot of freedom. Yeah. 
So all of those points led to the Islamic Empire being a great place for scholars and for for scientists and for for people who wanted to seek out knowledge. Mm. So a lot of the factors that we mentioned so far deals with things that are, you know, on the ground, physical. Um, but I think it's more. Uh, I think it's more interesting, perhaps, sometimes to talk about the Islamic part of the Islamic Golden Age, like how how Islamic was it, and how much did did Islam fundamentally affect this Golden Age? And I think that's 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 pretty interesting because again, we can do some comparisons to Europe, where medicine and science is deeply connected to not just Christianity but also the, the church. The church has full authority on on education almost in all literacy generally. Uh, but this is not the case in, in, the, in the Islamic world. This idea that healers are connected to clergy doesn't exist, even not even close in, in, in the Islamic empire. Not only could all faiths practice medicine, as we mentioned, uh, but they could also contribute to the sciences. But the role of clergy in the Islamic world was a bit more limited than in Europe at the same time. I think one important aspect of talking about religion in the Islamic world is that it's it's very differently structured than Europe at the time. When people look at the like the caliphate from a European perspective, they often map on a sort of Christian structure, mm. which doesn't really work. Because in Europe at this time, the, the church is a separate entity from all of the kings and kingdoms and, um, and dukes and vi- like village mayors or whatever. That's a, it's a separate entity. The priest is, is more loyal to the pope than anyone else, and the Pope is a separate entity. But in the Islamic world, the leader of the faith is the Caliph, which is also the political leader. A consequence of this is that the clergy, uh, the Imams, the people who are uh, focusing on faith, they don't have to worry about integrating society into the church or into the religion, because in theory, every, every Muslim and everyone who lives within the Caliphate is already in that system because the caliph is already the the leader. So there's there's no need to to discuss loyalties between the king and the pope or anything anything of that nature. Um, Islam was still the social core of, of Islamic society and it influenced how society was structured, but they also separated the study of, of religion uh, from other types of study. At the time and in the area, it wasn't seen as specifically religious to pursue intellectualism, like in other areas. In theory, it all serves, like no matter what religion you are, or no matter really what you do, it all serves religious goals, because it's all in, either in accordance to the Quran or the Hadiths, or it's in the service of the Caliph, the religious leader, uh, as well as the political one of, of the empire. So anything that helps the state and is according to the Quran, for example, is good for Islam, even if a person isn't actually Muslim. This meant that intellectual goals weren't just limited to clergy, and in fact clerical research and study was seen as its more like separate individual uh, devotion, separate from philosophy and science. Uh, because of this and what I already mentioned, the role of the clergy was like pretty limited in terms of, of science, even if religion and religiosity and things of that nature influenced much of scientific thought at the time and how people thought about philosophy. So that was uh, an introduction on how religious leadership was 
structured in society. And, you know, like we said, this is a really, a really interesting distinction with Europe where religious leaders were also the ones who were performing medical research. So here in the Islamic world, that wasn't the case because there was a, a, a bit of a different structure and because a, a lot more people were able to read and were able to perform research. Science was, I don't want to say that it wasn't influenced by religion because it was, and this is actually something that I want to take up now. But in any case, it wasn't, it wasn't like religious leaders that performed all this research. Before I get into how religion affected scientific thought, like on a practical level, I do want to make this point again, that Muslim scholars did not just translate and relay the knowledge from classical manuscripts. They actually had their own interpretation on the previous thought. So an interesting difference between classical thinkers like Aristotle and Muslim thinkers is that the previous thought that knowledge derived from observation was inferior to theoretical knowledge, which is something that Muslim scholars really disagreed with. So Muslim scholars, they, they, were, they were said to not accept the result unless it was born out of observation and experimentation. And there's a very famous example for, for this. So one of the most prominent Islamic physicians, Al-Razi, decided on the location of a new hospital by placing pieces of meat around Baghdad and seeing which piece of meat had putrefied the least. So they placed a lot of importance on sensory knowledge. And this may have had roots in the Quran. And this is one of the things that I wanted to, to talk about, about how like religious teachings actually influenced the way they, um, they performed scientific research. So there's this passage in Quran which reads, in the creation of the heavens and on the earth, and in the succession of night and day, in all this, there are messages indeed for people who use the reason. So one interpretation of this passage is that the Quran appeals to those who use the reason to study the wonders of nature, and then the power and spiritual message of God is pervasive in the material world. In short, this religious messaging supported the study of science from an empirical sensory perspective. I just like the idea that also he's collecting meat around Baghdad, mm -hmm. just to see like, okay, which area is like the most rotted? <laughs> which area is going to destroy my flesh the quickest? Seems like a very, like, you know, it's, it's not great science, but it's better than, again, what Aristotle did. So religious doctrine actually affected medical theory itself. One, uh, one other interesting example is that medieval Muslim scientists actually used the notion of interconnectedness of God's universe as one of uh, the basis for the theory of contagious disease. <laughs> so because we're all connected, this is how and why disease spreads yeah. from one another because everything is part of, of, of because of everything God's universe. is because everything is connected um you know i don't I, I mean you know it was still the medieval world so i don't want to sit here and like you know dunk on <laughs> on medieval scientists but i do think it's interesting to look at like medical theories at the time um and you know, kind of try to see how the context made them come to those conclusions. Mm. So going on the interconnectedness thing, they believed that a person was made up by a unique combination of elements that also made up the rest of the universe, and that a person's temperament and condition was affected by external factors such as food, drink, water, air, uh, where they lived, and, and so on. And this view may have had religious roots as well. This author, Raphael, 
suggests that they did not regard man as a separate entity, but as connected to both God and nature. And because man is part of the universe, the illness has to be connected to the world around them. And this theory allowed physicians to accept that diseases had an external origin and that they were not caused by sin, demons, or divine punishment like some European doctors. <laughs> I was about to say, believed. like some continents. Like some, like some other cultures. Like some Abrahamic religions were thinking. But yeah, I mean, I just, I just really, I, I love this. I love how, you know, the, this different religion led them to draw some really interesting conclusions. And I'm, you know, I'm mm. not, again, I'm not saying that they were right in everything, but... It's better than demons. Mm. So there was an interesting sense of like scientific religious duality, which drove Islamic scholars to pursue science um, to the purpose of making sense of a world given to humans by God. So they viewed it as their task given by God to put together the pieces of the puzzle of the universe. So this led to a rather practical view of science in the sense that they studied fields that they deemed useful. And um, and here's where this is sort of my own interpretation. They also probably viewed their pursuit of science optimistically because they thought that their task was to find the answers that were out there and that they thought that God wanted them to find these answers. They were not... Um, their task was not to, you know, fix a world that didn't make sense, mm-hmm. which, I mean, I'm going to maybe come off as a little bit of a cynic, uh, but sometimes I feel like that's what it feels like now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when you're... The, the world is a cold and harsh, cruel universe and nothing makes sense. Well, you know, I um, sometimes it feels like the world that we live in is very chaotic, right? Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes it's a little bit hard to to think that the answers are out there. Like, sometimes it feels like certain things don't have answers. Not for Islamic scholars. <laughs> you no, the know? answers are there. We just got to find them. Yeah, they're, you know, they're, they're, they viewed their, um, their occupation as a divine pursuit. They thought that God was on their side and they thought that God wanted them to to heal people and God um, left tools to their disposal that would help them heal people. So according to Al-Bukhari, who is one of the most well-known collectors of hadith, they thought that there was no disease that Allah has created that does not have a treatment. So they they saw it as a divine pursuit and they did their best to heal using the natural means that God put at their disposal. But the religion was, like you said, mm-hmm. a big aspect of social life. So they did also accept that the outcome depended on God's will. Mm. I think one point, like an example of how they viewed science as very practical is like outside of medicine, because like this is a good example that like every disease has a cure somewhere mm-hmm. that God has placed on this earth so we just got to find it. Like other practical examples are, for example, that people would try to study like astronomy so that people could easy, easier find the directions to Mecca more precisely <laughs> or, or to you know better guide navigation for when people would travel for Hajj to Mecca. Mm-hmm. And that's other like practical religious pursuits of, of, of why they did their science. So lastly, I want to just to to emphasize something that you said earlier, where there was no break between religion and medicine in the modern sense. Like they weren't secular, but the religion played kind of a background role almost, Mm -hmm. if, if I could say that. So illnesses were explained, prevented and treated using the physical world. Like there was no supernatural explanation for Mm -hmm. why somebody would get sick, which is what happened in Europe at the same time. We talked a bit about this 
about how in Europe they kind of conflated physical illnesses with matters of the soul. So mm -hmm. they would they would try to treat your soul first because they thought that if you have a like a sick body, that might be because you're having a sick soul. Yeah. They didn't do that in the Islamic world. They knew that illnesses are illnesses of the physical world. Yeah. Like it's your body that's sick. Mm -hmm. It's not your soul that needs help. And, you know, likely because the world, because everything in the world, in the physical world, is also like part of God's creation, right? So that, and that's that's how it sort of plays into it. Like, yes, God, God has authority here, but God also made the herbs. Mm -hmm. God also made the food that gave you food poisoning, and now I'm going to give you and the herbs that God created to heal that food poisoning. Like, mm -hmm. you know, the, they, they see everything as part of the God umbrella rather than... Like yeah. the soul and the body being separate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they viewed illnesses as physical. So they treated it as like a physical issue mm. um, using physical methods mm. like herbs and like methods that we're actually going to talk about in a bit. Mm. So now that we've talked a bit about the context of the Islamic world, we've talked about like what factors led to the Islamic world being so prolific when it came to, to scientific texts. Uh, we talked about like the role of religion in Islamic science. Let's talk about how medicine actually looked in the Arab world. So this is, this is the part where I just kind of want to talk about um, like very real, you know, practical things. Like what did medical education look like? What did the hospitals look like? What are some specific things that they uh, came up with. So we've mentioned this before, that before the Islamic era, medical care was primarily provided by priests and monks in churches, sanatoriums, and annexes to temples. Arabian hospitals were centers of medical education and introduced many of the concepts and the structures that we see in modern hospitals, like separate wards for men and women, personal and institutional hygiene, medical records, and pharmacies. Medical records? I, I, there's a part of me that's like, did, did Europeans not have medical records? People just come in to get their like smallpox healthcare, and then it was like, who was that? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. What did we? What did we give them? I I don't know. How many people did you treat this week? I somewhere between ten and two hundred. Could be know. anything. Could be anything really. Um. So let's start with the medical education. So medical education was um was very systematic. There were only a few schools in Jundi, Shapur, and Baghdad that had separate schools for studying basic sciences. Most medical candidates prepared with private tutors or through self-study, which um, actually I guess it's kind of the same as in Europe, where people studied with private tutors or, you know, by reading books that they bought themselves. Like, there wasn't really necessarily, like, schools that they went to. Mm. Um, so it was kind of the same for, like, the basic sciences that was, like, a prerequisite for getting into medical school. In Baghdad, they learned anatomy by dissecting apes, studying skeletons, and through theoretical lectures. Alchemy, along with the study of medicinal herbs and pharmacognosy, were included in the basic training that was a prerequisite for medical school. And before you ask, <laughs> I was about to ask. Before you ask, pharmacognosy is like the preparation of pharmaceuticals from like any type of organic matter. So it can be like plants, but it can also be bacteria, 
animal uh, tissues, like human tissues. So it's like, I guess it's kind of like herbology, but wider. So mm-hmm. including more things than just herbs. Mm-hmm. Once a candidate completed their basic training, they were admitted as an apprentice to the hospital where they received housing until they finished their studies. So hospitals even housed the students as well as like the staff and you know everybody who worked um, in the hospital. Islamic dorm room. <laughs> they were assigned to a large group for preliminary lectures and uh, familiarization with the library. And at this stage, most lectures were on pharmacology and toxicology and the use of antidotes. The next step was the clinical training, where the candidates were allowed to join senior physicians for word rounds, discussions, lectures, and reviews. And at this stage, they were also taught therapeutics and pathology. The students were asked to examine and report on six major factors, the patient's actions, excreta, the nature and location of pain, and the swelling and discharges of the body. Love to examine excreta. And discharges. I love that those are separate. I know. They have to really be like if they sneeze, it goes in this pile. If it, if they if they if they excreta, it goes in this box. Yeah, they had a lot of category, like interesting categories for for different things. I'm gonna I'm gonna get into it. But so okay, the curriculum of the schools varied, but there was a very strong focus on internal medicine and surgery. And actually, the Islamic world is is known to have contributed a lot to like surgical knowledge mm-hmm. and like. Uh, knowledge of surgical procedures and techniques. So surgical procedures such as amputation, excision of varicose veins and hemorrhoids were required knowledge. And I feel like there's a joke in here about how like everybody knew, everybody had to know about hemorrhoids. Everybody had to know. Like were hemorrhoids a big problem in the they were definitely, in medieval times? They were definitely a bigger problem then than they, were, than they are now. Really? Because now we sit, because now everyone like sits on padded chairs and oh, sofa. That's why. Back in the day, you sat, you sat on cold stone. Does or, that give like you hemorrhoids? Hard, hard, yeah, yeah. If you sit on uncomfortable surfaces, it gives you, right. it, it can give you hemorrhoids. I or have if, no you, idea. if you have a bad diet, for example, you have to course, yeah. strain yourself harder. That's Today true, we have like miraculous diets by medieval standards. Um, you and know, if you if you do a lot of like. Walking, walking is like the primary mode of transportation back in those days. Maybe you have a horse if you're rich, but even if you have a horse, that's gonna you know bump up against your butt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you have a carriage, you're gonna sit on a bumpy carriage that's gonna bump up against your butt. Hmm. If you walk a lot and you're dirty. That's true. That's okay. It, it, there's a lot of things that just could give you hemorrhoids. I did not know this, <laughs> but now we know they. You know, a lot of people in medieval times suffered from hemorrhoids, and so. Every every med student, like the first thing they were taught was how to, to operate the hemorrhoids. They also were taught how to surgically treat cataracts, which to me, that's like, listen, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, right? I don't I don't know how difficult it is to perform surgery on cataracts, but I feel like anything that has to do with the eye, mm-hmm. like performing surgery on the eye, that seems like a very advanced thing. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they were doing this in the Middle Ages is like, seems really advanced to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back then they did it successfully too. You know? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It, it seems that it was it was commonly taught and commonly practiced. Yeah. How, what, what is cataracts? I think it's like um, a buildup on the retina, but I'm not sure. Let me look it up. Let me go in there and scrape it. A cataract is a cloudy area in the lens of the eye that leads to a decrease in vision. That's so cool. 
Orthopedics was also often included, and students were taught how to use plaster of Paris for casts after fractures. Obstetrics was left to midwives, so I guess yeah, there's, of course. Of course. Um, and after completing the training, the medical graduates had to pass a license examination administered by licensing boards. And the licensing requirement was actually introduced after Caliph al-Muqtadir in Baghdad learned that a patient died due to a physician's error. So that and that happened like they started introducing licensing requirements in Europe I think like in the 13th century yeah, yeah say? In something 1300s 1400s yeah yeah exactly so they had it a lot earlier and you know I mean maybe there's maybe if we looked into this deeper you know some some more hidden agenda would come up like it did when we talked about like licensing in Europe mm -hmm. but I still think it's interesting that they had it pretty early and it, it seems to have been because um, they wanted to keep physicians like up to a standard yeah it may have been more positive here because licensing in Europe was introduced more to like exclude and to more keep wealth within a certain factor but here like in the Islamic world, you're already getting wealthy anyway. So yeah. the licensing might be just a way to standardize the health. Yeah, I mean that's what I that's what I uh, mean when I said that like maybe if we looked into this deeper, like some other factors would come up. So mm -hmm. I don't want to like I I think maybe it's not as black and white. It's like here they just they just cared about standards, nothing else, and then there they just wanted to like have a monopoly on the occupation. But anyway, I just thought it was worth mentioning that it was introduced after like um, a patient died mm. because of physician's error. Also, they educated pharmacists as well. Uh, so pharmacists were different from physicians. Uh, they had to pass an entirely different license examination. And they were employed as inspectors to inspect drugs and maintain quality control of drugs sold at pharmacies. This is quality control in the 10th right? century. Exactly. So what the FDA is doing in the US now, that's what pharmacists were doing in the Islamic world in like the 10th century. Yeah, like a thousand years ago. It takes like 500 years after this that Europeans realize that they should wash their hands. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. Incredible. Uh, okay, so that was the medical education. And as you saw, it was very, like, it was very structured. They had prerequisites. They had a very, like, I mean, yeah, like, the curriculum varied, but they taught kind of the same thing everywhere. Like, they, they wanted you to know certain things. Like, no matter where you studied, you, you all, everybody learned the same thing. They had to be examined. You know, you, you had your job. So it was all very structured, very, like, systematic. Great. Mm. How did hospitals look like? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Hospitals were great. <laughs> they were great. I was I was reading um, I was reading the stuff, you know, doing research for this episode, and I was like, "Girl, <laughs> <laughs> wish we had hospitals like this today." I well, yeah. There are some aspects in this actually that I that I might mention later. That's like I wish I wish we had this today. I know it just. I mean, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna. Um, be a bit more specific about like what seemed really nice mm -hmm. but but what i mean is like they they just seemed like such like peaceful gentle uh relaxing places to be like oh my god i you know i've i've had some hospital visits they definitely didn't put in the effort to make <laughs> me feel <laughs> to make me feel like peaceful mm -hmm. um anyway so the hospitals in the Muslim world were excellent. They were government-run, and they served all citizens free of charge without any regard for their ethnicity, religion, sex, age, or social status. 
The hospital had separate wards for male and female patients, and each ward was staffed by people of the same sex as the patients assigned assigned to that ward. So women certainly served as doctors, which is something that we we made a whole episode about that like when it came to Europe because mm-hmm. it was like very complicated and they didn't like women and you know whatever. Mm-hmm. But there's you have female doctors let me, and free healthcare. Let me summarize it in one sentence. Like female were allowed to serve as doctors. That's it. They, that's it. That's all there is to say about it. They could go to med school. Yeah. So women served as doctors. Again, cannot be said about Europe at this time. The patients were allocated to different wards based on their conditions. So fever, wounds, infections, mania, eye conditions, and diarrhea were all allocated to different facilities. I love that diarrhea is its own category. I was about to say, imagine the horror. You've, you've, you've gotten late to work a few times, and now you're working the diarrhea ward. <laughs> That's like the the lowest rank. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're the bucket pusher in the day. We're working. Oh, stop. They Someone's got to do it. Someone's got to do it. Um, they also had a separate facility for lepers in the Damascus hospital. And may I remind you that around the same time in Europe, lepers were burned alive. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we got a, a little bit of a different approach. The hospitals also had their own conference rooms. They had housing for students and staff and well-stocked libraries. So, so they were there were hospitals, but they were also universities. They were they had conference rooms. They had libraries. Like it was, it, w- it was like a, a hub of learning and healing and knowledge. It was it was amazing, and for the first time in history, like I like I said before, these hospitals kept extensive records of patients and their medical care. Do you want to hear an interesting fact? I do. About the Toulon Hospital. I don't know if, if every hospital did the same. But the Toulon Hospital had this program where each patient was given five gold pieces on discharge to help them support themselves until they could return to work. What? Yeah. So not only is healthcare free uh-huh. for everyone, they have mm. free healthcare mm. for the 99%. Bernie mm-hmm. Sanders is loving this. But you also get paid on the way out. Yeah. There's, there's, it's universal healthcare and universal health insurance <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. This is amazing. I know. I'm telling you, I was reading this and I was like, God damn. Five gold pieces? I was born in the wrong generation. That's a lot, though. <laughs> it is, yeah. That's so, a lot of money. So listen, I, I, um, I only heard it in the context of Toulon Hospital. Um, so, you know, it doesn't sound like it was something that was necessarily done everywhere. And I don't really know the details. Mm. Maybe it was just like a short program. You know, maybe they had like a surplus of money mm, one yeah. year. It feels like it could be easily exploited. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I also read something about how certain people would fake illness because the food was so good in the hospital. So they just, they would fake illness just to stay in the hospital for a bit. <laughs> the hospitals were too good. Yeah, they were too, the Holy, food was too tasty. Oh they took God. care of you too good. Again, wrong. We were born in the wrong version. In mm-hmm. this this era, but with Wi-Fi. <laughs> um, yes. Lastly, there were even mobile hospitals, which were staffed by the same people who worked in, like you know, the the real hospitals, and which were fully stocked with instruments and medications. These traveling clinics served those who were disabled, disadvantaged, and those in remote areas. So you know, you you're disabled. You can't go to the hospital. Don't you worry, a hospital comes to you. Mm-hmm. Or like people who are disadvantaged, you know, that they can afford to, to, to get there. Mm-hmm. They will come to you. And they were also used in times of epidemics. So overall, the hospitals were well-organized. They were innovative. 
and they were incredibly humane for the time. The words of those afflicted with fever were decorated with fountains which cooled the air. The mentally ill were treated with gentleness and care. And at night, music and storytelling soothed the patients. I need this. I need this. I need this right now. I need to stay <laughs> for a few weeks. I need to go to the hospital <laughs> in Toulon. Can you imagine? Like, they, they tell you stories, so you go to sleep. And the fountains cool the air. And the, the mentally ill are treated with gentleness and care. This is especially relevant to us. <laughs> this is relevant to us, yes. Um, Imagine going to the hospital and just going by the fountain, sitting down in a nice little chair. Yeah. Lounge. Lounge. Eat, I need this. Eat grapes. Eat grapes. <laughs> eat good food that's better than what you have at home. Mm. And then when you leave, you get, you get paid five gold coins. What yeah. a world! I know. So those were the hospitals. So, you know, you, you can tell by now that they were, they were doing very well. They had a very humane approach. They, they, they were obviously like very well funded, which, you know, definitely plays a role. Like I remember in the first, the very first episode that we made for this podcast and we talked about mental health and how like bad it was because there were no programs for mentally ill people and there was no like funding for mm-hmm. mentally ill people. So, I mean, you know, having money for, for these things, like helps a lot mm-hmm. but yeah i mean they were doing great next i wanted to talk about specific contributions that muslim or should i say like islamic scholars brought to medicine and the first one has to do with anesthesia and surgery so because in school in med school they focused a lot on internal medicine anesthesia and surgery was very advanced for the time so they knew about opium and they loved opium they uh they knew it was a powerful anesthetic but they also knew about other anesthetics that were you know not as powerful but were still like used extensively and that includes a mandragora hemlock belladonna and lettuce seed as well as snow and ice cold water (laughs) which which i like um i'm i'm curious i mean i guess there are mountains what I'm just thinking about, like, where did, where did it get snow? It doesn't snow a lot in Baghdad. That's true. But I'm guessing there are mountains. Mountains, there, yeah. yeah. So I guess, I mean, I, 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 you know, of course I know about snow. I'm just thinking about the availability of it. Mm. I'm I do not sure. Like That's a good question. Seed, though. Yeah, I, I've, lettuce never, seed? I've never heard about lettuce seed as, as, a, as an anesthetic. But, you know, I guess they use it. I also, I also like that they use ice-cold water as an anesthetic, which I can see why, mm. but I've never heard of it being like referred to as an anesthetic. So anesthesia was often administered via soporific sponge, which was a sponge soaked with aromatics and narcotics that was held to the patient's nose. We've all done that. Huh? We've all done that. Have we? (laughs) Just dip a sponge in some nice little narcotics. I've never done that. I don't know who you hang out with, but I don't do that. Mm, Right. Um, So in addition to anesthesia... Physicians in the Islamic world, so I keep wanting to say Muslim physicians, but, you know, that's not entirely correct because, you know, a lot of the physicians and the scholars at the time were not even necessarily Muslim. But, you know, maybe sometimes I will use it interchangeably just to refer to, like, physicians in the Islamic world. Um, So they were the first to use alcohol as an antiseptic and silk sutures for hemostasis. And thanks to the extensive knowledge of anesthetics and antiseptics, Islamic scholars were able to develop surgery to the level of an honorable specialty. If you remember, at the time, 
in Europe, surgery was still practiced by barbers and it was viewed as a barbaric procedure. It wasn't done by like intellectuals. They viewed it as like slaughtering people. They didn't see it as, as like honorable at all. This was not the case in the Muslim world. So pharmacy was an independent and separate profession from medicine and alchemy. I already mentioned that there were strict regulations around selling drugs. Apothecary owners would face humiliating corporal punishments if they sold adulterated drugs. Similar to doctors, they had to become licensed. And also doctors were not allowed to own or hold stock in pharmacies. Hold stock? Yeah, but like, isn't that so, that is so advanced and that is so like forward thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, remember when we were talking about pill mills? <laughs> yeah. Like the United States is still struggling with that. Yeah. The Islamic world is way ahead. A thousand years ago, by the way. Yeah, and then I wanted to talk about mental illness. And I've already referred to it a little bit, uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it again because it's, it's important. Like, I think you remember how in the first episode we talked about how mental illness was a trash fire in Europe at the time. Not, not in the Islamic world, though. Arabic physicians combined psychological methods and physiological examinations in the treatment of mental illness. They also did not share this like superstitious view on mental illness that the Christian world held at the time. They treated it as a physical illness, and they also definitely treated the patients better. They categorized mental illnesses based on compiled observations of their behaviors. Some of the mental illnesses they named include agitated depression, obsessive neurosis, Sexual impotence, <laughs> which is a mental illness. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, delusional neurosis, mania, and lastly, love. <laughs> Disease, mind. Um, We've all been there. While they didn't necessarily get it all right, it was, I mean, you know, it was, it was the Middle Ages. They definitely created a space more suited for healing. So they had baths, they had medications, and they also treated the patients with music therapy and occupational therapy. Lastly, I wanted to talk about the Islamic contribution to medical ethics, because this is something that kind of like has been coming up throughout this episode where physicians in the Islamic world would treat their patients very well. Uh, and this is, this is a very important thing to, to mention. So they were the first to establish medical ethics. One of the earliest and most thorough books on medical ethics is entitled Adab al-Tabib, in English that is Practical Ethics of the Physician, by Ishaq ibn Ali al-Ruhawi, a contemporary of al-Razi who lived in the 9th century. Another very prominent book is Aklak al-Tabib, Medical Ethics, written by al-Razi, who is known as Galen of Arabs, due to his authority and achievements in medicine. In his book, he presented a model of ethics in Islamic medicine that was divided in three parts. The first part is the physician's responsibility to their patients, and then the second is their responsibility to themselves, and the third is the patient's responsibility to their physician. According to Al-Razi, a major responsibility of the physician was to keep studying, but also refrain from conceit and instead dedicate themselves to their patients, not to be rude or aggressive, but soft-spoken, compassionate, and modest. So treating patients nicely and kindly was like a major tenet in medical ethics, which set the tone for medical practice at the time in in the Islamic world, (laughs) I have to say. Another major responsibility, and this one is really interesting that they had it, was patient confidentiality, which the physician had to swear to during their Hippocratic oath. So again, this is 
it, this is incredible that they cared about patient confidentiality, like in the Middle Ages. Mm. I definitely know that like the Islamic world had like higher regards to just things like privacy in general. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Something that the, the Christian world did not have at the time. Yeah, for sure. Like the, the Inquisition is coming and they're going to find out everything. Yeah. Then, according to Al-Razi, the physician had to maintain optimism and encourage their patients, even if they didn't think the patients would recover. Which I think is so... I mean, it's so interesting. I don't know. I, I, loved, I loved reading through these, like, um, like physician responsibilities. I think it's it's so interesting also how it relates to um, to Islam itself. The physician also had to treat all patients equally, respective of their social or economic status, and treating female patients with respect and care was, like, big in uh, Al-Razi's writings. Um, because, like I said before, I mean, hospitals were divided into facilities that were separate for women and men. And, you know, you had men treating men and women treating women. But, you know, sometimes it did happen that, like, men would treat women and vice versa. So it was still, they were still going to interact sometimes. And they they really cared about male physicians treating like female patients with respect. Uh, lastly, Al-Brazi encouraged humility in physicians and reminded them that it was only through Allah that they were able to heal their patients. So there was no none of that. Uh, you know, it's 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 thanks to you that the patient is is healed. They really wanted to keep that in mind at all times that you know you're 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 healing through Allah. You're healing using the methods that Allah has made available to you and it, it's ultimately up to him if the patient like lives and thrives so if you did a good job or not yeah um that was important to them I also love that Al-Razi invented bedside manner <laughs> yeah I guess that was just like earliest bedside manner yeah just don't be a dick be kind mm-hmm. the fact that one of the tenets is don't be aggressive is amazing to me Mm-hmm. Don't yell at your patients. God, I mean, I'm thinking about, um, you know, the physicians in Europe at the time. Um, I, I I, don't know. I have a feeling that they weren't... I mean, I'm just thinking about the like doctors with the sticks. I'm sure they use that stick on people's backs once in a while, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. The, the, the stick was not only used to examine from a distance, but to keep them away. <laughs> I think it's a weapon. Um, I think it was a weapon. <laughs> well, that is a that's a that's a good good history of both like why what the golden age was, what they did during that kind of golden age, what uh, what various contributions that they had, which is why I feel a bit bad now coming in and being like I'm going to talk about a little bit about why why this golden age ended. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it had to end. Sometime. It had to end sometime. Yeah. As, as with history, all things do end. And then you're also going to talk about, like, the legacy. So, yeah. you know, it's not like they ended and didn't... They, they had a great contribution to, like, mm. medical science and they left a mark on history. Yeah. So I think that everything has to end eventually, but they achieved a lot and uh, I think that's what's important. Yeah. So this era of the Islamic Golden Age did eventually end. And that happened for a multitude of reasons. First of all, Europe wasn't just uh, sitting in its own filth during this time. It was actually sending over crusade after crusade into the Islamic world over mm. and over again for better wars. And doing that costs money, fighting off Christians, trying to take parts of your country. And it's very annoying. And it takes a long time to sort of recover from those. 
one invasion that probably hit harder than anything else, and that is history's favorite lad, Genghis Khan, <laughs> who decided to completely mess up a significant portion of the entire world in his empire that spanned from the Pacific Ocean to the Baltic and the Mediterranean. During these invasions of the world, when he decided to almost become king of, of Earth, Baghdad was under siege, and the House of Wisdom there was destroyed entirely during the siege, uh, leaving very little physical remains at all. Some scholars even today still doubt the existence of this House of Wisdom at all. Like, it may have been legend. It probably existed, like almost guaranteed. But as some are saying, it might have been legend. And this is, by many historians, the first nail in the coffin of the Islamic Golden Age. Like, this is the beginning of the end, so to say. Having much of Eurasia be conquered also makes it so that old trade routes that had funded much of the wealth of, of the Islamic Empire, that could fund these hospitals and um, centers of learning, that had been in service of, for hundreds of years, suddenly don't work, because trade doesn't work the same way it works before when the Mongols have destroyed entire cities and vast tracts of land. So trade routes no longer work, and many of the trade routes were destroyed. And this has an effect on the most sacred of historical institutions, money. <laughs> With no money, you can't do anything. Unfortunately, the gears of history slow down when the economy slows down. Another blow to the intellectualism of the era was a shift in thinking around religion. Mm -hmm. Previously, Islam was seen as more, you know, in, as an individual thing that just was the base of society. But it still mattered more on an individual level than a society-wise one. There became a bit of a shift. Over time, the Quran was, um, was more read literally, and this was a direct promotion by some of the later caliphs who decided that they wanted to centralize more power into themselves. Because mm -hmm. remember what I said before, that they are both the political leader and the religious leader. And you can have a lot more power in your role as religious leader if everyone is like more fundamentally religious. This led intellectuals to shift their focus more on spiritual pursuits rather than scientific, and caliphs began to see natural events as individual instances of God's will rather than a contextual event in God's world. And therefore, they couldn't be rationalized anyway. There's no point. God wills it, therefore it happens. Don't worry about it. A little bit like how the church viewed it in Europe. A little bit like God is the deciding factor. There's no point in trying to find a cause. The final blow, so to say, to the Islamic Golden Age as we know it, however, was when the Ottoman Empire decided to conquer much of the Arab world and in what, what we call the Middle East, shifting a lot of power away from Arabic groups towards Turkic groups. Still Muslims, but different like ethnic groups and different political structures. Now the Ottomans are in charge. But it should be mentioned that despite all of this, much of the scientific fervor of the area continued, even though it had to adapt to you know, a changing landscape due to warfare, economics, and new empires, because the Ottoman Empire also continued this tradition of valuing education and, and science and a, a strong like healthcare infrastructure, although not in the same way as before. That empire also eventually declined, but that's a story for another time. Today, however, like, how do we remember these innovations and discoveries by scholars? One aspect that is often overlooked generally, that both of us have mentioned so far, and especially you, is that it's because of this Islamic Golden Age that we even have access to ancient texts from ancient Greece, for example. We mentioned Galen, for example. And because of many of these translations aren't just direct translations, but as you've mentioned, additions and interpretations, when these texts were being given to European scholars, 
much of the work of these European scholars had already been done for them by Arabic scholars. But what happened was a lot of these European scholars basically just took credit for a lot of the work that Arabic scholars had done for them. So by extension, we can basically credit the entire Renaissance to these Arabic scholars because they had done their own Renaissance long before Europe had it, and we just copied their homework, <laughs> filed the serial numbers off. Many of the treatments that were proposed or in action in the Islamic Golden Age didn't come back in fashion until very, very modern medicine. A thousand years ago, the Islamic world was the most advanced medical community in the world, and many treatments for things that we would today label controversial or like revolutionary were already in practice, like you mentioned, with like music therapy and occupational therapy. Like these things are pretty new. Uh, unfortunately, like a lot of their achievements have been forgotten due to misattribution. A lot of Christian scholars, like I mentioned, stole their homework, refused to credit. Um, but also, in the 19th and 20th century, a lot of European imperialists decided to carve up much of the Arab world for their own empires, the British Empire, the French Empire, and, to some extent, the Ottoman Empire. And in a goal to distance the Arab population from their heritage and their culture, actively destroyed much of the history of, of, of these achievements. If you ask students today about famous Islamic doctors or scientists, you might get one or two. I think most students aren't super aware of this things, but everyone knows of like Aristotle and Socrates. A lot of medical students might know Galen that we that we mentioned a few times, and we're gonna have to make an episode about Galen eventually. <laughs> we mentioned him like in four episodes at this point. He's like he's a fun lad, even though it is thanks to these Islamic scholars who who translated their work and actually made it understandable. And there are many other ancient Greek philosophers, for example, that probably had much more of an impact than Aristotle or Socrates, but because we don't have their translations from the Islamic world, we don't know about them. Even the idea of the Islamic golden age as a concept is a little bit of a European construction, because early mentions of this time period were coined by imperialists that I mentioned before in the Middle East as a way to sort of discuss the, the current decline of Islam from a supposed golden age. As a, as a sort of like, oh, you, you Muslims, you're, 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 you're just trash, you're garbage, you're nowhere close to how you used to be. You used to be so great. But now this term, like golden age, is being reclaimed as a sort of positive thing, as a dimension and a positive light of, of Islamic and Arabic history. You know, that is, that is the Islamic Golden Age. Very shortly, there's like 600 years of history here, at least, with, you know, hundreds of inventions and innovations and pioneers. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm glad we talked about this. I really want us to, to, um, to talk about non-European events and movements. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, maybe we can do like China next or... I think Native American healing. Native like American yeah. healing, yeah, that could be really things. interesting. So, all right, but this is the episode on the Islamic Golden Age. Mm -hmm. uh, again, my name is Raluca Montano. And I'm Ian Mulder. We hope that you enjoyed the episode. If you liked it and you want more Leechfest content, feel free to follow us on Twitter at LeechfestPod. Or if you want to support the channel, you can go to Patreon at LeechfestPodcast. Yeah, and there you can get access to the next episode right now. If you're listening to this on Spotify, for example, and you want to listen to the next one, it's already up on Patreon. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, you can also get shout-outs and notes and um, 
all sorts of uh, cool things. So check us out. Very good. It's good stuff there. All right. This was us. We hope that you have a great rest of the day and we will catch you in the next episode. Inshallah.